What negative thing goes along with great ability? What negative thing? You see some unbelievable athlete, someone with tremendous ability. What negative thing most often accompanies that? Pride. Thank you. That's it. Ego. Uh, so, anybody in here a baseball fan? Anybody, any baseball fans here? Anybody a big, big baseball fan? You ever heard of a five-tool player? All right, five-tool player. So, uh, what are the five tools? Somebody said hitting. Hitting for, hitting for average is the second one. Hitting for power, hitting for average. Uh, running, fielding, and steroids, right? <laughs> so who was the last five-tool player? Who was the last five-tool player? Anybody know? Mike Trout. I've heard several people say Mike Trout. So the fact is, there's no way to know. It's a, it's a, it's a debate. It's like who's the greatest basketball. Well, there's not really a debate about that. Uh, it's Dr. J. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people will say uh, it was uh, A. Rod, but he kind of didn't turn out to be as great as they thought he'd be. Most people who really study it. So the last great 5-2 player was Ken Griffey Jr. He started with the Seattle Mariners. He kind of got traded for more money back and forth and around and around. And near the end of his career, he ended up back with the Seattle Mariners. And he finished out his career there. And he would go out on the field and routinely he would be booed. Anybody know why? He was leading his team in almost every statistic that he could lead his team in. They were booing him. You know why? He wasn't leading the league in every field. It was a disappointment because he had all this talent and he should have been leading the league and leading the team. Leading, leading the team should have been number one, but they weren't and they were upset about it. The problem with a 5-2 player is it becomes all about them. All right, you with the Georgia shirt on. What's your name? Aubrey. We've met before somewhere, I think. How do I know you, Aubrey? Ah, very good. Thank you, Aubrey. So, uh, you play baseball? You don't. Okay, good. I'm, I'm glad that's, that's good. So, who's the best pitcher in the major leagues right now? Kershaw? Okay. So, Aubrey, somewhere or another, ends up at the plate batting Kershaw's pitching. First pitch. Kershaw throws a high heat. Aubrey swings at it. Connects. It goes over the fence. They bat the rotation. Second, third inning, Aubrey comes up again. First pitch. Nasty curveball. Aubrey swings at it, somehow connects over the fence, left fence, left field fence. And then in the game, he gets a third bat. 
Gets up, first pitch, sinker. Over the fence, first ball. How many of you believe that could happen? Sorry, Aubrey, you got no fans here, okay? <laughs> it's possible. No, it's not. <laughs> if it happened, what would we say? Luck? We'd say it's a miracle. That's all we say. No way that could happen. Ken Griffey Jr. goes up, knocks it out of the park. We say, Ken Griffey Jr., of course he did that. We expected that out of him. I want you to know today that God has a vested interest in using people like us, ordinary people. Remember what Paul said about this? So the excellence of his power might be of him and not of us. So I know we don't have a picture, but in your mind, out loud, describe the Apostle Paul. What does your Apostle Paul look like physically? You ever done that? You, ever, you get an email from somebody and you think you know about reading, corresponding with them. You think you know what they actually look like. What does Paul look like to you in your mind? Let's, let's create our Paul in our mind. Who does, describe Paul to me. Strong, okay. What? A warrior. Paul's different than mine. He's a nerd, okay, yeah. I picture Paul as kind of short, not much to look at, probably balding, sorry to some of you. Uh, you know, can't see very well probably. Hands crippled, you know, he's been stoned several times, and the first thing when you're stoned that gets broken are your hands because you're trying to use them as defense mechanism. Uh, not much of a voice. He's strong, but he... You know, he wasn't, you know, they, they criticized him, you know, you, in, by letter you're, you're all this power and in presence you're nothing, you know. That's what was a criticism of the Second Corinthians to him. As this thorn in the flesh, what was it? Thank you. <laughs> right answer, we don't know. Most people say it was his eyesight, right? I don't believe it was his eyesight. I, my belief could be as strong as yours because we don't know. I don't believe it was eyesight because remember when he's on the road to Damascus and then uh, he comes along, Ananias comes along and says, Brother Paul received your sight, the Lord miraculously restored his sight. I don't think God gave him half sight at that time. I think God gave him good vision. Uh, he will say the Galatians, you would pluck out your own eyes for me. Uh, it, that's just a colloquialism. It may, it's possibly just a colloquialism. I mean, if I said to you, you give your shirt off your back, it doesn't mean you're going to give your shirt off your back. It just shows how gracious you are. And somebody says, well, Paul says, you know, see, with what hand, large handwriting I sign my name to, when he writes to Timothy. And, well, he, you know, he, he, couldn't write, he couldn't see, so he had to write big. I figure his hands were all broken and brittle. He couldn't write well. My belief is as good as yours. I, we don't have any proof of what it was. But as a thorn in the flesh. And three times ask God, remove it. And God says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made great in your weakness. Why would God use a superstar when he could use an ordinary person? And people say, God did that, not man did that. Gideon is average. Our second guy today is not average. He also is in the book of, of, uh, of Judges. If you'll turn to Judges, 
chapter 13. And you know this one better than you know Gideon. So it's going to make the story harder to tell in keeping you engaged, but stay with me in it. I think there's some good things we can mine out of this story that will be useful for our lives. He's the strong man of the Bible. You already know Samson, right? This unbelievable strength. He's in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 32. So he's there, but he's the strong man of the Bible. And what we're going to call this lesson is how to be a stronger person. I don't know what, if any of you, some of you in here I know have probably lifted weights before. I don't know what your max bench was, but whatever it was, you wanted it to be 5 or 10 pounds more when you hit whatever that max was. We're interested in being stronger people. We admire strong people because strong people, for whatever reason, seem to have it all together. They look like they're, they're together. They're strong. They don't crumble in a crisis. They're calm in the midst of chaos. Everybody wants to be a stronger person. Do you know it is possible to be a strong person physically, but a weak person spiritually? And the life of Samson is the life of a man who is unbelievably strong physically, but unbelievably weak spiritually. He is a Rambo physically, but the Pee Wee Herman spiritually. He's a moral wimp. Peter Drucker in his book, The Effective Executive, says that every time you meet someone with great strengths, they also have great weaknesses. And our weaknesses can kill us. We all know about celebrities who have great talent but ruin their lives morally. We know about great athletes who make unbelievable money. And then there's that 30-minute special done on them years later where they're bankrupt and living as street people. We know about great presidents who had great strengths in leadership but morally had all kinds of weaknesses, flaws in their characters. We can learn something from Samson. Somebody says it's wise to learn from experience, but it's wise to learn from the experiences of other people. Samson had the potential to be a superstar for God. From his very birth, he sat apart with a Nazarene vow. Judges chapter 13, verse 24 says, A woman bore a son and called his name Samson, and the child grew, and the Lord blessed him. Right from birth, he is a special child. Samson, if you look at his life, had everything going for him. He had good looks. He had strength. He was from a godly family. God's blessing his life. Somebody said he would have been voted most likely to succeed in his high school annual. He had unbelievable capacities and potential, but he wasted his life and he loses it all and he ends up a broken man. It's a sad commentary of how we can be our own worst enemies. So you got Samson raised in a godly home, dedicated as a baby, took the Nazarite vow, which was a vow of complete dedication to God. But instead, he rebelled and went his own way. And the sad thing is, he didn't see it happening right in front of his eyes. And in Samson's life, we see three things to avoid if you're going to be a strong person. Number one, self-indulgence will weaken your life. Self-indulgence will weaken your life. Anytime there's an area of your life that is not disciplined, it will make you weaker. It could be money. 
It could be sex. It could be power. Anything it is in your life. It could be food. It could be alcohol. alcohol. It could be your emotions. It will manage your life instead of you managing your own life. Self-indulgence. People have pet indulgences. My dad and I used to debate back and forth over Hebrews chapter 12, the besetting sin, the sin which does so easily beset us. You know that, that verse? Uh, I, I kind of think it's a specific struggle that we have, and it's different for every person. Dad thought it was more generalized. It's any sin in your life that's un, not in control. They're similar, but we kind of debated it some. The truth is, though, regardless of what it is there, we all have areas, specific areas in our life that we conquer and they come back. We, we put them down and they end up back in our life. For Samson, he is indulgent. He is the playboy of the Bible. In three chapters in the book of Judges, he is with three different women. In chapter 14, we find the first encounter. Samson went down to Timnah, are you with me, and saw a young Philistine woman. That makes red lights go off in our mind, doesn't it? Philistine woman. God had told the Israelites not to marry outside of your family unless that person had been proselyted, and she had not been, been. And when he returned, he said to his father and mother, I've seen a Philistine woman at Timnah. Watch it. Now get her for me as a wife. There is Samson's philosophy in a nutshell. I saw, I won't get it. That's his philosophy in life. His father and mother replied, Isn't there an acceptable woman among your own relatives, our people? Must you go to an uncircumcised Philistine to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me. She's the right one for me. The King James says, Samson looked at her and said, She pleases me. The New American Standard says, Get her for me. She looks good. That's the way Samson lived his life. Self-indulgence. Always interested in his own pleasure. She pleases me, I want her. It didn't matter that God had said, don't marry an unbeliever. She excites me. She turns me on. She pleases me. I've got to have her. He was self-indulgent. It's that way with ourselves. We may not say it to our parents. We may not say it out loud. But don't we say it? Just this one time. Just one more time. It couldn't hurt. Just one little thing. Satan's favorite rationale is it's a small thing. The fact is, small things have a tremendous power in your life. James will use the illustration of the New Testament. We could talk about it today the same way. You see some great ship like the Queen Mary out there in port. And you see the rudder in comparison to this giant ship. It's a small thing, but it's a huge thing. It controls that whole thing. Imagine you're going to get on a cruise ship next week. I've been on one cruise in my life. My wife and I went on one for like our 25th wedding anniversary. No, our 30th wedding anniversary. We went on a cruise. It was horrible. We hated everything about it. We're not cruise people. We, we, somebody told us we picked the wrong cruise. It was a carnival cruise, and all they did is dance and drink and, and gamble, and we don't do any of those three things. So we were kind of in our cabin, you know. It's like, well, okay, there's water out there. Uh, maybe you love cruises. My brother's gone on several the Alaskan cruises, he and his wife Laura passed away a few years ago. They would go every two or three years. They talked talk about how great it was. They'd be talking about how great it was. And we're thinking, we don't want to go on any cruise. But imagine you're going to get on a cruise ship. And right before you're leaving dock, 
the, 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 what do you call the guy in charge of this? The captain, that's it. The captain comes over the speaker, I'm, I'm paid to talk. The captain comes, comes over the speaker and he says, ladies and gentlemen, I'm Captain Morris and today we're going on a cruise and we're excited. Seven days we'll be out in the Atlantic. You're going to see some great things, but before we leave port, I wanted to let you know there's, there's, a, there's a hole in the side of the ship. It's, it's not a really large one. We're not really concerned about it, but we'll be taking on water. We just want to let you know before we left. What do you do? You get off, thank you. You get off the boat, right? We think, you know, well, this little thing's not going to hurt my life. Trust me, little things matter. Drop me back at dock. How do I handle the little things in my life? Galatians chapter 6 and 7, one translation says, Do not be misled. Remember that you cannot ignore God and get away with it. Oh, King James, be not deceived. God is not mocked. Goes on, a man will always reap just the kind of crop he sows. If he sows to please his own desires, he's planting seeds of evil, and it will surely harvest a harvest, reap a harvest of spiritual decay and death. Lesson number one. Strong people discipline their desires. Strong people discipline their desires. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I will be not be brought under power of any. Proverbs 25 verse 28 says, anyone who lacks self-control is like a city whose walls are broken down. The second thing that will weaken your life Bitterness will weaken your life. Bitterness will weaken your life. When you look at the life of Samson, you see bitterness. Almost every time we see him, he is either going after something with all his heart or he's angry at someone. You know, bitterness can destroy you. The New Testament writer calls it a root. You ever let the root of bitterness get in your heart? It'll corrupt every other vital item of your body. You're angry at one person and suddenly it affects your family life and your work life and your spiritual life. Your relations all over begin to crumble. Why? Because you're bitter at one person. Beware that any bitterness creep into your life, he'll say. The last verses of chapter 14, he burned with anger. He went out and he killed 30 men just for their clothes. That's a hot-tempered man. I've heard of people killing someone for their sneakers, but 30 men for their clothes. Chapter 15, we see it several times. Verse 3, Samson says, This time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. Verse 7, Since you would do a thing like this, surely I will take revenge out on you, and after that I will cease. One translation says, I won't stop until I get my revenge. Verse 11, he made the typical excuse. He said to them, as they have done to me, said to them, as they did to me, so I have done to them. That's Samson's modus operandi. You do this, I'm going to re retaliate. You want to spend your life being miserable? Spend your entire life reacting to how other people treat you. Instead of making your own choices of how you're going to behave, behave the way the media, the way the culture, the way the world tells us to behave. I only did what they had, they got what was coming to them. Resentment is rough. Bitterness is horrible. It's a waste of time. 
the old time that you're, th- made, that you're angry and stewing and spewing, the person you're upset with may be oblivious to it. I know men who spend their whole life angry at their parents because of how their parents treated them, and their parents have been dead 10 or 20 or 30 years. Why would you do that? Why would you waste your time that way? That person you're angry at may have even forgotten it. They may not even meant it for bad, but it ended up working bad in your life. It's a waste of energy. You spend all that energy conniving ways to get even or thinking about what they did to you instead of using your mind to be creative to do great things for the Lord. Worst of all, it's a waste of that creativity. You look at Samson's life, you have to admit, this guy's pretty creative. Chapter 15, verses 3 through 5. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be blameless regarding the Philistines if I harm them. Then Satan caught 300 foxes and he took torches and he turned the foxes tail to tail and he put a torch between each pair of tails and he set the torches on fire. I bet the foxes love that. And he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and he burned up both the shocks and the standing grain as well as the vineyards and the olive trees. That's pretty creative. Somebody called that the first tail lights. You can work out on your own apparently. Uh, verses 14 and 15, Philistine armies coming out of the fight. He looked around and finding the, a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. A thousand men with a jawbone of a donkey. When you're angry, you can get pretty creative of how you're going to get revenge. The second lesson is this, strong people restrain their reactions. They discipline their desires and they restrain their reactions. They're not reactors. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 22, a hot-tempered man starts fights and he gets into all kinds of trouble. Sadly, I know some Christian men who all they'd like to do is fight over the Bible. They see the Bible as a tool to fight people with. And you may win a lot of fights, but you'll never win the war if that's you. You'll never lead a person to Christ if all you use the Bible for is to disprove someone else. That's not the purpose of the Word of God. And I know some people have a head full of Scripture and a heart full of sin. Vance Habner said that. I don't know who said it before him. That's who who I got it from. It's a long way from the head to the heart. I know some people, they can quote every scripture you can put in front of them. They have, somebody said, they're as straight as the gun barrel doctrinally, as empty as the gun barrel spiritually. And that can be you. You can have every doctrine parsed, but only use it as something to harm people with, and you'll never do any good. One translation translates Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 32 this way, a slow, it is better to be a to be slow-tempered than to be famous and to have self-control than to control an army. And we know this verse from Ephesians, be angry and sin not. Why is anger sinful? It's not always sinful. It's sinful when it becomes destructive. Alexander the Great conquered the whole world by the time he was in his mid-30s. Tremendous power, but he couldn't control it. One time in anger, he, uh, he killed his leading general. He also killed his best friend. He cried out, I've conquered the world, but I can't conquer my own soul. Number three, carelessness will weaken your life.
carelessness will weaken your life. When you look at Solomon, he's very care- Samson, he's very careless. Chapter 13 and verse 3. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Indeed, now you are barren, have borne no children, you shall conceive and bear a son. And here are the characteristics of the Nazarite vow. Now, therefore, please be careful not to drink wine or similar drink, nor to eat anything unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall deliver Israel out of the hand of the Philistines. God had a purpose for Samson. Samson took this thing called the Nazarite vow. No alcohol, no eating unclean things, and don't cut your hair. Samson, you are different. Can you hear his mom? Surely. I don't know. It's not in the text. But every day, Samson, you're different. I prayed for you and God gave you to me. God's going to use you for something great. He's going to use you to free us from oppression. Samson, God told me this. Samson, you can't drink. Samson, you can't cut your hair. Samson, you can't eat unclean things. Your life is to be completely for God. You're to be different. And you know this. Samson's strength wasn't really in his hair, was it? His strength was his commitment to God. The hair only represented that commitment. The problem with Samson was that he totally forgot his commitments. He refused to take them seriously, refused to take God seriously. Samson thought everything was a game. It's all fun, a good time, and he's irresponsible. So he toys with temptation. How close is he going to get to the fire and not get burned? It's seen most clearly in the most, one of the most famous relationships of all time. People who, who know nothing about the Bible at all. If you ask them who are the f- most famous couples in history, you'll hear several names. And some you'll hear almost every survey. Samson and Delilah. Most famous story of relationship you'll see. It's a, it's a barbershop episode in Samson's life. As you know, Samson had this uh, weakness for women. Three, maybe four, it depends on how you read it. Different women in three different chapters. Delilah tries to find out the secret of his strength. The Philistines come to Delilah and says, If you'll find out the strength of your husband, we'll pay you 1,100 pieces of silver. That's around thirty to $35,000 today. Delilah was a treacherous person, the text says. And she said, basically, I'll take it. So she tries to find out Samson's strength. You know the story. She tries several different times. Verse 4 of chapter 16, sometime later, he fell in love with a woman from the valley of Sorka, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, if you will find out, lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength, we'll give you 11,000 pieces of shekels of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret of your strength. So Samson turns it a game. If you bind me with seven fresh cords that have never been dried, I'll be as weak as everybody. Now here's the odd thing. Samson puts in a bed. Our me, Delilah puts, her, puts in a bed. I think there's more represented there than just them going in the bedroom and going to sleep. But he does go to sleep. She calls in the Philistine men. It says, Samson, wake up, the Philistines are upon you. And he burst out, and basically the party's over. He gets rid of them all, kills them all. Samson comes back a second time and says, 
You've made me look so foolish. Tell me your strength. Samson says, all right. It's new ropes. You buy me with new ropes, brand new ropes. I'll be, never be strong again. I'll be like everybody else. So she puts on the bed again. She binds them with new ropes. Samson must have been a heavy sleeper. And brings in all the men, wakes them up. The enemy's upon you, and he kills all those men. You'd think Samson would start catching on at this point, right? Every time he goes to sleep, he wakes up. There's a bunch of men in his room. You know, you'd think he'd figure this out. The elevator didn't go to the top. The lights were on, but the, nobody was at home. I don't know. But he kept compromised a little bit every time. Third time. Weave my hair into seven braids. Getting closer to actual truth. He's getting closer. He's playing this little game with her. It did have something to do with his hair. Finally, she comes to him and says, This is the third time you've tormented me. You haven't told me the secret of your great strength. My father-in-law, and I don't know if he's right, he preaches on Roanoke, Alabama. He's preached there for 64 years. Still preaches every Sunday. He says that Delilah turned on the waterworks. I don't know if that's really true or not. Verse 16, And with such nagging, she prodded him day after day, and watch it until he was tired to death. Don't raise your hand if you're married to a woman who nags. But if you are, you get that, right? Tired to death. So he told her everything. That was it. Philistines come in. She cuts his hair. Verse 19. Having put him to sleep on her lap, she called a man to shave off the seven braids of hair. So she And so began to subdue him, and his strength had left him. And then she called out, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And Samson wakes up and thinks, what's new? Another group of men in my room. I'll just take care of them like I did the others. She woke him from his sleep. And he thought, I'll go out and shake myself free as before. And here's one of the saddest texts you'll read. He did not know the Lord had left him. Ah, tragic. How many lives is that true of? In public, they're still leading the prayers. They're still leading the church. They're still preaching the sermons. They're still wearing the suits. They look like they have it all together, but their life has fallen apart. And it happened gradually. And he assumed he would always be strong. And the lesson is no one ever plans to be a failure. Nobody ever takes that first drink and thinks someday I'm going to be an alcoholic throwing up on the curb. Nobody who embezzles, who takes that first little bit of money that's not theirs, ever thinks I'm going to be a thief and embezzle for my company. Nobody who does drugs the first time thinks someday I'm going to be a drug addict and sell my body for anything. Somebody ever, nobody ever says, when they first start flirting, I'm going to destroy my marriage with an affair. It starts with a little thing. Nobody ever says, I plan on destroying my health. And it builds and builds to the point that some people wake up with a rude awakening and suddenly, God's not here. Where's God? What happened? They did not know the Lord had left them. Here's the lesson. Strong people keep their commitments. They guard them. There's an old saying, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. You're only as strong as your weakest commitment. So where are your commitments in life?
Samson appears only to be committed to one thing, himself. I'll do this, I'll do what I want, I'll get what I want. If it feels good, do it. I'll take what I want. I'll do what I want in life. Selfish and immature. Totally undisciplined. Discipline brings freedom in our life. When we discipline ourselves, we always get stronger. Strong people keep their commitments. What's weak in your life? Of course, you know the tragic results. Verse 21. It's hard to read. Strongest man in the world. The Philistines took him and gouged out his eyes and brought him to Gaza. They put bronze shackles, fetters on him, and it became a grinder in the prison. I think it was Brother Wendell Winkler who preached that sermon. Sin is binding and blinding and grinding. The champion of Israel becomes a sideshow in the circus. A clown doing the work of donkeys. He put out his eyes and he lost everything. He lost his power. He lost his potential. He lost his influence. He lost it all because he wasn't serious about what you should be serious about. And we always think, I'll be different. Just one more time. I'll get it under control. But because he was weakened by bitterness and by selfishness, and by carelessness, he did not. But wait a minute. Hebrews eleven thirty two, Samson's in that list of the hall of faith, as we call it. Well, he's forgetting about God. God didn't forget about Samson. And the great news is that God gives a second chance. There's always hope. Verse 22, but, watch it, the hair on his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. And Samson has time to think about his life and his commitments and his sin and what he had done. And he's grinding that meal. He has to think, Lord, I've blown it. I made a royal mess of my life. The good news is God gives these second chances. And Samson prayed, repented. Samson's greatest victory came on the last day of his life. I like to ask people who are successful when I interview them. Would you rather do one thing great in your life and be remembered for that one thing or have a lifetime of greatness? President Barack Obama, how old was he when he left office? 42, is that right? Somebody help me, maybe. You think the rest of his life he's got in front of him, but can he ever do anything greater? Is there a, is, is there a role greater than President of the United States? Would you, rather, would you rather write one great book, Harper Lee, or would you rather write a series of great books? Would you rather do a lot of little great things or one great big thing? Samson's greatest day of his life was the last day of his life. So they take Samson and they decide to use him as a party favor. They have a big party for all the leaders and they take him to a pagan temple and they put him in the middle of that temple with all the partying going on around him and all the important people in the country that are there and they put him between two pillars, two columns. They don't know he's been praying and been committing his life back to God. And Samson prays, Lord, in this last effort, let me avenge my enemies. And he begins to pull and to strain with every muscle of his body and the two pillars of the ceiling collapse and 3,000 of the enemies of God die. And it's the greatest victory of his life. 
Samson's life is confusing at times, and at times it's kind of confounding, but it's also comforting. You, you expect people in Hebrews 11 like Noah and Moses and Abraham, but Samson, maybe that's you. I've made a lot of mistakes. I've made a mess of my life at times. I've blown it. I've morally fallen. I've weakened my life financially. I've blown relationships. I've totally destroyed myself with a bad habit. And God through Samson says to today, you can start over. And that's the good news. I don't care what you've done in your past. You may have blown it in all sorts of ways. But God can still use you. If God could use Samson... He could use you as a commitment and a recommitment. So three questions. What is out of control of your life? One thing can destroy you. What are you resentful against? Bitterness will eat away your soul. And what are you commitment, committed to? A commitment to God taken seriously can change your life. God can do great things through people who commit to Him. Let's pray. Father, again, we're so thankful for this day and for your word, for this man, Samson, who is so confusing in the way he lives his life, but so comforting us in that you can use us even when we've made a mess of our lives. Father, help us to make those things right and to live for you. We love you and thank you for loving us. Bless these men. Thank you for the strength that they have. Make them strong in the right ways. In Jesus' name.